0: Podcast of the Leeds for Dante Studies. I'm Matthew Traherne, and this is the third in the series of Conversations on Dante, part of the Leeds Dante podcast. We're taken today to the late 1950s, to the art world of New York City, where the artist Robert Rauschenberg, in his mid-thirties, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, found his career hitting a low point. As we'll hear, he embarks on a project to produce an illustration for each canto of Dante's Inferno using a method which he himself has invented called solvent transfer. This project will transform Rauschenberg's career. To explore Rauschenberg's illustrations of Dante's Inferno, I'm joined by Ed Kirchmer, Senior Lecturer in Art History at the University of East Anglia. Now, Ed's book, Rauschenberg, Dante, Drawing a Modern Inferno, was published by Yale University Press in 2017. It's a really wonderful book which shows how Rauschenberg's illustrations of Dante engage with debates in the New York art world, debates around ideas like authority, high culture and popular culture and the relationship between them, vernacularity and historical contingency But it also sets up some really fascinating resonances and connections with Dante's text. Now, the illustrations are held in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. They can be found very easily on the Museum of Modern Art website, MoMA.org. I found it really inspiring reading Ed's book and talking to Ed about Dante and Rauschenberg. And I really hope you enjoy today's conversation. I'm really happy to be speaking to Ed this morning. I'm calling from my home in Leeds, and I'm speaking to Ed in his home in Ely. So, morning, Ed.
1: Hello, Matthew.
0: I wonder if we could start our discussion by thinking a little bit about the context in which Rauschenberg is creating these illustrations. I guess, first of all, thinking about um, where he is in his career at this moment in the late 1950s.
1: Yeah, the project comes at a a pretty crucial moment for Rauschenberg and it does have quite an effect on the trajectory of his career. The drawings were made between the summer of 1958 and first exhibited at the end of 1960. He's born in 1925, so he's in his early 30s when he takes the project on. He had studied through the late 1940s and early 1950s at Black Mountain College, which was a kind of uh, multidisciplinary liberal arts college, actually Mm -hmm. away from the metropolis in North Carolina. And he'd moved to New York and was working within the context of the development of abstract expressionism in New York through the 1950s. He'd had Several one man shows and had participated in some group exhibitions in commercial galleries in New York. But I have to say that through that time he developed something of a reputation for a a kind of enfant terrible. While the kind of mid to late 1950s is now seen as perhaps the most fertile and extraordinary creative period in his career. Uh, he really enjoyed no commercial success. The critics were pretty sceptical of what they regarded to be quite outlandish, kind of neo-Dada tactics. His gambits were not all sympathetically understood at that time. And actually, the decision to take on the Dante project may well have been in part prompted by the relative failure of a recent one-man exhibition at the at the recently established Leo Castelli Gallery. And his partner at the time, Jasper Johns, in fact, had just had an absolute extraordinary debut there. Almost everything sold immediately. So, yeah, it came at a a time where he was in rather a dark wood, to be honest.
0: So he's he's personally at a bit of a low ebb in terms of his career. Could you paint a picture, um, if you'll pardon the pun, of uh, art, the art world in New York at the time in the late 1950s? You mentioned abstract mm-hmm. expressionism as, as one one aspect of that.
1: I mean, obviously, this is a it's a complex picture and it's it's a difficult thing to kind of accurately summarize in a brief way. But I guess the the yeah, the main uh, story that's that had been happening for the last Ten years or so, really since the late 1940s, was the emergence of this large scale, confident, rather at times portentous form of abstract painting. At that time, known by a few a few different names, action painting or the New York School or abstract expressionism. Um, there's lots of other things going on. There's, there's forms of realist painting going on. There's there's plenty happening in the 1950s. But the thing that certainly Rauschenberg felt to be the sort of primary arena mm-hmm. was large-scale abstract painting of the likes of Jackson Pollock and especially uh, Willem de Kooning. I should say that at that time, the idea of art as illustration was basically a byword for triviality you know critics would would refer to art that was illustrative in a kind of dismissive way there was a commitment to the idea that a painting would be somehow authentically self-sufficient that wouldn't it wouldn't depend on some literary pretext to justify its nature or its presence it would it would stand to be encountered rather like another person would be encountered and it would Attempt to draw on the resources developed by the recent history of painting itself so so the the idea of a, an artist taking on a project of illustration, especially mm. in fact of a, a kind of canonical European text, was a kind of anathema to many of the most advanced critics then
0: really interesting because I think one of the things that really struck me from reading reading your book was. First of all, that, that uh, at the moment when Rauschenberg engages in this project, he's obviously kind of looking for something to to lift his career and to to I suppose to to provide a sort of a framework for his for his, for his work. But also the the choice not only I suppose the choice of doing a, a project of illustration, mm. but also the choice of Dante is mm. actually in, in some ways quite unexpected. There's a there's mm. a lovely quote. From From Dor Ashton, who knew Rauschenberg well that that he of all people seemed so unlikely a dante man i mean could could you say what we know about how Rauschenberg came to dante
1: mm, sure so We don't know very much definitively. The reason why he took on the project in the first place, it does seem very unexpected. There are ideas that he took it on to sort of dignify what was a a critically unpopular practice at this time. There may be something of that. I think there's a number of internal reasons as well. He was looking for a kind of framework to keep the solvent transfer drawings going to give them a kind of logic. And as a heavily dyslexic man, I mean, the condition wasn't well diagnosed at that time. But he did speak later about taking on a project of this type as a kind of personal test. I mean, why Dante particularly Mm. is tricky. I mean, Dante, and particularly the Inferno, has a a kind of currency amongst the American avant-garde. I mean, as I mentioned, Rauschenberg was at Black Mountain College, and in the early 50s, uh, Olson, Charles Olson, the poet, um, was there and he was certainly very interested in exploring Dantean themes in poems like In Cold Hell in Thicket, for example. The, the husband of Rauschenberg's soon to be gallerist, Ileana Sonnebend, her husband was Michael, who was him, himself an amateur Dante scholar. He in fact wrote the commentaries for each canto, which when the drawings were first exhibited at Castelli, they were shown beneath each drawing. So mm. it may be that out of conversations with him, the idea came, um, we don't know for sure. There are things we know a bit more concretely about how uh, Rauschenberg read uh, Dante. The first thing to say is probably that he read him in translation. Rauschenberg didn't speak Italian, so he read primarily John Ciardi's recently published translation, of the Inferno. Incidentally, I don't know if you watched the series Mad Men. Yes. Did, did you remember at the beginning of season six, Don Draper is in Hawaii and he's on a deck chair reading a book. I do.
0: Yeah. I think the the Dante community kind of collectively got very excited about oh, that, really? that moment. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so that was um, not the first edition of Charlie's translation, but a, a slightly later one. Right. And that was the edition that Rauschenberg was using. So that was the translation, not the edition, but the translation.
0: But, but I mean, Rauschenberg, so as a reader, he's, he's reading it in translation. Mm. He's not particularly interested in in getting deep into the scholarship, I think. That comes across in yeah. your book. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: That's definitely fair to say. In general, Rauschenberg wasn't a readerly... Artist, as I mentioned, he was severely dyslexic, and he always found reading a challenge yeah he clearly it's it's obvious when you study the drawings closely it's It's clear that he did pay quite close attention to the translation and he He mentions at, at other points that he did refer to other translations. How much that's the case, I'm not sure, but yeah, he was attracted to the kind of idiomatic, rather rugged translation style of Dante's of Inferno I think and I do I do think that one aspect of why why Dante not only initially appealed but why uh it was an idea that stuck was that maybe two primary reasons the first the appeal to the vernacular in Dante and secondly the saturation of the text in contemporary social and political references and Topicalities.
0: So those are, yeah, those are two ideas. I'm sure we'll we'll get onto. Before we go any further, I wonder, could could we just maybe talk a bit about the, the scope of the project, the shape mm. of the project? You've mentioned the idea of solvent transfers, and I want us to go mm. sort of in depth on that a little bit later. So it's one illustration per canto, mm-hmm. and he starts in 1958. Is he immediately aiming to complete the whole of the Inferno? Is that is that his plan from the outset? That
1: is, he works on um, the first six cantos initially. But just to give you a sense, the drawings are, are just shy of forty centimeters by thirty centimeters. He completes six over the summer of 1958, and he applies for a, a Guggenheim grant for some money to to complete the rest. And he doesn't get it. And a number of a number of us can you know, feel uh, some uh, empathy with this situation of writing funding bids. But it's likely then, actually, that he leaves off the project for over a year and returns to it sometime in the spring of 1960 to complete the remaining 28 cantos. Yeah. And in the end, there's there's 34, one one for each canto, as you mentioned, and each one, when they're first exhibited in December 1960, uh, just a couple of weeks after they're finished, they're displayed in a horizontal row, unframed, with um, a short paragraph or two of text underneath each drawing to explain the main action in the in the Dante. So they're, they're they're
0: designed to be displayed in that way, in in, in exhibition form.
1: Mm. rather
0: than as illustrations to be published in a a book is that right yeah that's right yeah it's interesting that they you know you talk about the sense in art in new york at the time that the artwork has to have a sort of independence from some Mm. other text so when when we're talking about these as illustrations i think it's quite helpful to to have in mind that, that they're not being designed as illustrations like say the doré illustrations where they are meant to accompany the text in full
1: it's curious in a way that they when they were first exhibited and when they were sent on tour through europe in the mid 60s Mm. um, they were always accompanied by an account of the dante so not 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 the complete thing but they were they were accompanied by an account of the action
0: we've mentioned the idea of uh solvent transfer as, mm-hmm. a, as a method. Could you could you just give us a sense of what the actual techniques are that are involved in the solvent transfer method?
1: Yeah, sure. It's um, a technique of Rauschenberg's own invention, rather rudimentary, uh, deceptively simple and complex, so to speak. So the main um, technical resource here is Rauschenberg clipping images from either the daily newspapers or the weekly press, magazines like Life or Time or Newsweek or Sports Illustrated, clipping those images, soaking Mm -hmm. the image and the sheet of drawing paper in in lighter fuel or um, earlier on he used turpentine um, to loosen the bond between the ink and the paper, placing it Face down on the sheet and rubbing it with, a, with a, some kind of stylus, an old ballpoint pen or the back of a, a paintbrush. To press the printed ink from the page, uh, the printed page to the drawing sheet below. What you get is a kind of flickering, striated, reversed as well, image of a, a mass-produced original. You can vary the, the weight and coherence of the transfer by varying the pressure, varying how, how quickly or, and evenly you scrub the back of the surface. Interestingly, it's, it's blind. You know, you can't see the mark as it's appearing on the page. So there's an aspect in which there's a kind of de-skilling going mm. on. Yeah. But it's a way to bring over the literal residues of the everyday vernacular media Mm. into the artwork. And Mm. once the transfers are there, Rauschenberg would then use watercolor or gouache or sometimes colored pencils to go over these transfers to offer a kind of atmospheric patterning to accent various details so yeah, the, the the basis of it and the thing which was perceived to be most important was the solvent transfer, and that was then augmented by these other um, these other elements. So I, I I can see that
0: as a method, it's it's full of ideas which which are really interesting, perhaps especially in relation to to Dante. Mm. I suppose there's a questioning of hierarchy, perhaps of mm. ideas of low and high culture, mm. which you know, Dante is obviously really interested in.
1: Oh, well, I was just going to say that that is really one of the crucial tensions uh, mm. in this period. You, you've got the burgeoning of um, a newly expanded and active art market. And I don't say this exclusively. It doesn't hold for everybody involved in the movement, but a number of abstract expressionist painters were. Deeply resistant to what they saw as the kind of banalizing or trivializing aspect of a commodified post-war American culture, and they wanted to keep art in some at some distance from the encroachments of that culture. And they held to a certain idea of a kind of authentic seriousness, which was tough-minded, which refused to be compromised. But, of course, the meanings of artworks are not determined by the intentions of the artist. And once the work leaves the studio, it's available for all kinds of appropriations and redesignations, depending Mm. on where it ends up. So, you know, Rothko may have seen his work as a vehicle for transcendence or hoped that his work would be that for viewers. But, Mm. you know, it ends up on, referring to Mad Men again, there's a scene where Burt Cooper has his Rothko in his, you know, marketing office. And so the, the, the position of setting up a kind of a avant-garde art in opposition to kitsch culture mm. is seeming to be less and less possible to sustain in a authentic way, actually. Um, and artists like Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns and others were crucial in Bringing into dialogue the precipitates of that mass culture with the kinds of formal devices associated with Duchamp or Pollock, and remember this is just a few years before the emergence of pop art. And often Rauschenberg is thought about as helping to bring about that different kind of paradigm.
0: And so I suppose you know one of the one of the words which seems especially important in all of this is the word contingency.
1: Mm.
0: Which you you use in in the book, but that idea, I suppose, uh, both of taking material from Mm. printed media, very local to particular Mm. historical moments, and bringing it into these illustrations but also actually you know the way you just described the solvent transfer method the contingency of the process itself where it's you you called it i think a blind process the way in which it takes place is a certain sort of handing over to contingency as well that seems really interesting in these these illustrations
1: i really see that as a crucial aspect of them because they've often been seen as of unusually long duration in his practice so that he worked on them for two and a half years. It's not. It's not quite right that once you track the sources, you see that he worked over them in quite delimited bursts of activity. Mm. And actually, it's not a. It's not a, a process whereby he's going out searching for particular images to correspond with particular motifs in the Dante. I really mm. have the sense that he's using what comes to him by chance, what what what's on the newsstand that day or that week, and Yeah, making best use of the kind of unheralded details of the mass media to make Mm. these drawings. It's not a question that he has the intention of what image he wants to use far in advance and then seeks it out. So at, at all levels, all the way down, I think Rauschenberg is embracing contingency. And in a way, allowing it to fall through the kind of organizing net of his mind and his attention the net sort of catches these falling fragments they're allowed a place within this extraordinary framework that he finds ready-made in a sense in the data
0: there's something really interesting about also what happens to that contingency in the reception the interpretation Mm. both of both of of these works and also of Dante's text as well Mm. where even though many of those images are you know would be fairly accessible to to people who are immediately contemporary to that Mm. in many cases that accessibility sort of dissipates quite quickly yeah Um, so you're left having to engage in an act of interpretation and understanding quite quickly afterwards you you sort of set it set it a remove from the contingencies but but just as with Dante I suppose that that the, you know the Inferno is absolutely packed with local detail and for, for for readers sort of very close to that time much of that detail would have been available but actually many of the examples he gives are, you know they, they wouldn't have been accessible for that much longer as well and so in a sense it's not so much the content of the contingent details themselves that is critical to understanding the text, but rather the idea of, well, what do you do with contingency? How do you engage with it? And how is it a prompt for interpretation engagement? So I guess to put it another way, the point of looking at these images taken from magazines, newspapers, etc., is not to kind of figure out what exactly it's referring to at that time in order to kind of unlock the meaning of the text but the point is to understand that these are contingent details and therefore to use that as a prompt for reflection on the nature of
1: contingency. I think that that is exactly right I think part of my work was to try to find where all of these transfers came from and to what you know to identify the references to establish a kind of um, chronology for how the things were produced etc but That is absolutely not somehow an interpretive key that unlocks the significance of the whole thing. Rauschenberg Mm -hmm. never declared the source material. Um, Critics that wrote about the suite, um, they did refer to some, as you say, you know, Mm -hmm. 1960 election year, Kennedy and Nixon. Critics did point to Kennedy and Nixon both included in Canto 12 for example but the vast majority of these I think were not even legible to contemporary viewers such as the nature of the transfer process that it really does reverse, degrade and often often they're on the very threshold of visual legibility. You know some of them may be recognised, some of them not famous sportsmen then you know that are no longer familiar to us. Rauschenberg Often famously said that he wanted to operate in that gap between art and life, you know, and I think if you operate in that gap and you draw your inspiration and resources from your immediate contingent moment, then you accept that a lot of the things just fall through that gap they they look back at you with a kind of opacity as a as a future viewer and so part of the challenge for me about this suite was concerning the problem of interpretation and I'm from my um, forays into the enormous Dante scholarship that's clearly a a crucial question for specialists such as yourself you know Mm -hmm. the the the, the posing of the problem of interpretation is is really crucial about the kind of work that art does
0: well I think I, I think in terms of you know you talked about vernacularity as an idea as well earlier and I think um you know, certainly for Dante, that notion is also critical, where Dante in writing the comedy is making a clear choice to write in the vernacular. And he knows very well, you know, certainly in terms of accessibility, writing in the vernacular would have helped him you know, reach different social milieu. But in terms of time and history he knows very well that you know the vernacular language is subject to change inherently and so he's he's immediately sort of situating it in a time and place in such a way that it's going to very quickly require that sort of interpretation it's so interesting that Rauschenberg is also really situating his illustrations at the moment when he's when he's making them. I suppose it, it it's creating the relationship between the viewer and the images. There's a sort of distancing effect that's going on, but also it sort of activates a sort of desire to interpret and a set of questions, which I, which I feel is, is exactly what Dante is trying to do as well. I, I felt, a, in reading your book, I, I felt a real affinity in terms of the way you were grappling with the question of the source materials that Rauschenberg was 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 drawing on, and the potential that understanding those offers, um, where there is, you know, you have a sense that okay, if you, if you could understand these source materials a little bit better, you might understand these illustrations better. On the one hand, but on the other hand, you're also saying, well, you are missing the point if you, you know, mm-hmm. if you think, well, I, I've understood which which it, you know, which. Um, Which edition of Sports Illustrated have this particular illustration you know, image in?
1: Yeah, I mean it leads us to a bigger problem, doesn't it? That maybe art isn't really about knowledge. I would claim that in some senses, uh, knowledge of the sources does fairly radically change our understanding of the drawings. But only in a sort of contingent way, if you like. That I don't I don't think that as you say it's about arriving at a solution like a crossword puzzle as you were saying creating this relationship between the viewer and the images that that activates a certain interpretive desire that 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 puts you in the in the frame of mind to regard the opacity as well as the transparency of what you're looking at as important i think it sounds like yeah the there there are There are crucial correspondences there with with what Dante's doing too, and it's really important that that the will to know and to control the text mm. doesn't override one's ability to approach it and experience it with a certain sort of humility. I suppose
0: should we talk a bit about how the illustrations engage with the text so you mentioned in the book that Rauschenberg's certainly aware of Botticelli's, uh, Botticelli's drawings. He knows Doré's illustrations, mm. dislikes them intensely, I gather.
1: I think he doesn't like the sentimental aspect of them, and he doesn't like their personal selection of one incident or episode in a canto to exemplify the whole. He wants to be more faithful to the overall structure of Dante's text. And it's something that he'll talk much more about uh, later on at some distance from having made the project. Mm. The idea kind of fixes a bit more in his mind that he was wanting to uh, produce rather like a reporter or a sort of, More literal correspondence between the amount of language used to describe a particular thing in the text and the proportion of the surface that he wanted to devote to it. It's not a rule, you know, it's not a precise rule, Mm. uh, but he certainly wants to avoid what he would regard to be the imposition of his preferences and his judgment on the text. He wanted to treat the the text as a sort of objectively kind of valid Thing, right, which, which right. he's trying to make over into a a contemporary American visual vernacular.
0: As a reader of Dante, I find that I find that really interesting also because it's something that often happens as we interpret Dante is that we give a sort of shorthand to the cantos that often reduces a canto to a particular moment. Um, canto twenty six is often described as the the Ulysses canto, canto five as the you know the Francesca Paolo canto, whereas well, actually when you read the cantos that there is always more going on so that sense of making sure that you're giving appropriate weight to the things which are taking place i think is actually just on that level is a really interesting mm. way of thinking about the cantos
1: i really i think that attentiveness is crucial it's alive in his broader practice attentiveness to things that are most frequently overlooked I mean, sometimes he can be remarkably precise about things which don't seem very important. Yeah, and you get the Mm. sense that it's a kind of chance find looking through the New York Times that he stumbles across an image, um, like, say, for example, in Canto 5 you mentioned, mentioned in that canto, I think, is Cleopatra. And uh, Rauschenberg must have stumbled across an image of Theda Barra, her silver screen star, in Mm. her role as Cleopatra. Right transfers that you know and there's no way that's arbitrary it doesn't mean that he's he's looking for months to try and find it but you know some so, and sometimes little details that seem relatively incidental mm. uh, from the point of view of trying to summarize one main point from a counter he will lavish quite a lot of attention on those sometimes
0: so it's something kind of really interesting just psychologically about the way you know that idea that he's he's obviously reading Dante carefully he's got Dante in his mind and then he's looking at the world through that lens mm-hmm. and seeing what strikes him which i think is really interesting in the book you talk about you you use canto 20 uh, mm-hmm. as a, as a really important case study so this is the canto in which Dante and Virgil see the soothsayers and the false prophets uh, it's a really interesting canto Within Dante's text, for for lots of reasons, um, what what made you choose that example Ed as a as a case study?
1: Yeah, there's a few sort of specific cantos that I pay more attention to, and the last chapter of the book is trying to work in some detail on this one illustration. I suppose that the the detail that hooked me on it was a face in the the bottom half um of the drawing, which many commentators had uh, identified as the face of Sigmund Freud. So this is the, the, the Greek augur Euripolis. And I found the, I found the connection between Freud's interpretation of dream images and one's interpretation of artworks quite a, a fascinating There's a fascinating dialogue between the interpretive processes of psychoanalysis and of of our history. So I was initially kind of intrigued by this uh, inclusion. Then actually, I was looking through the the magazines and the newspapers to to try to identify where this source came from. I did find it, but it turns out that it wasn't... um, Sigmund Freud, the image of <laughs> Sigmund Freud, which doesn't mean that Rauschenberg didn't see it as resembling Sigmund Freud, which yeah. he does clearly because most people have identified it as him. Um, but it's, it's actually the, the image of uh, the face of Bernard Berenson, the art historian. And it's half in shadow, half illuminated in the transfer, which, again, I found very sort of compelling. I mean, there are reasons why one might condemn freud as one of the uh, fortune tellers and diviners you know those who are punished by having their head uh, reversed upon their bodies and they mm. they walk forward but can only look backwards mm. and there, there are kind of clear ways in why that might apply to a particular notion of psychoanalysis as preoccupied by infantile sexual uh experience always mm. looking back and there's a particular context in which the recently deceased Berenson uh, works too, with regard to his, firstly, some, some references to perhaps some shoddy dealings when he was asked for his expertise to verify the authorship of a particular Renaissance drawing or something. Um, but secondly, because his, of his broad brush dismissal of experimental artistic practices of the 20th century which he felt could never measure against the enduring uh, statements of someone like Dante or Michelangelo so there's a number of reasons why Rauschenberg may have been uh, negatively disposed towards Berenson but it came you know it raised the problem of well yes you found the the actual source image but that mm. just, that doesn't get you out of the problem of the relationship of interpreting what is a deeply ambiguous image and knowing you, you don't you never know what's in an artist's mind when they're even if they tell you later, you still don't know. You know, we're not we're not aware of what we're doing a lot of the time. So I found this a really compelling uh jumping off point for a, a consideration of what status the the day's residues that Freud regarded the manifest content to be constituted by the day's residues. And clearly Rauschenberg is in a process of using the literal residues of the daily news in the fabric of his drawing. So it was really uh, a place to begin a more methodological consideration about what one does with the manifest content and what one does with an everyday, a realm of everyday impressions, which, mm. as we began, is is quickly is contingent, is fleeting, and is, in important senses, not recoverable.
0: I can see that absolutely everything's there in terms of the questions you've been raising about contingency, how we interpret, what we do with, you know, information about the sources. Mm. <laughs> you know, it looks like Freud, turns out not to be Freud. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the presence of a doyen of art history there, you know, someone also so concerned with questions of authenticity, of authority, of artistic hierarchy and tradition. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely brilliant. And, um, you know, so a lucky a, mind, I thought. Yeah, it's a wonderful.
1: Thing. And you've got to make good on them, haven't you? you know, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, but also tells us so much about how Dan- uh, how Rauschenberg's then able to to set that in dialogue with Dante to kind of open up this absolutely fascinating kind of space for us to to engage with all of these ideas. Could we maybe end by just hearing a little bit about um, the reception of the illustrations? You say that they're displayed in New York fairly soon after completion.
1: Yeah, they're first shown at at Castelli. They're then donated. They're bought for the Museum of Modern Art, who still owns them now. Uh, The Museum of Modern Art in New York sends them as part of one of their international touring programmes. Around, beginning actually in London, a a magnificently successful exhibition of of Rauschenberg's work in general, which included the Dante drawings in 1964, Mm. they're pretty much their most popular exhibition um, to date and from there yeah they went to Germany Austria Scandinavia many places around Europe before arriving back in the in the States and then went on another tour through a number of cities in the in the US and they really had a a profound impact on his reception Rauschenberg having not accrued much critical success at all by 1958, by 1964 was the artist who won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale. Um, Now, I'm not saying that that's just because of the Dante drawings, but certainly when they were first exhibited in New York, um, they served to convince some more sceptical, critical voices The huge success of the London Exhibition at the beginning of 1964, I'm sure, had an impact. And they, alongside a couple of other important events, served to kind of launch him beyond the caricature image of the the kind of neo-Dada, puckish, kind of bad boy person. So, And and ever since, really, they've enjoyed a... um, healthy reputation yeah so i felt like they they've not yet been subject to a book length study and my book was supposed to be at the outset it was going to be a chapter of another book on drawing but um <laughs> once i got going on it uh, there's just so much there and so much in the dante that mm. um it seemed clear they they require some some more expansive treatment
0: so ed you've taken on a, us on a wonderful journey we've we started off with Rauschenberg. In A Dark Wood, as you said, um, his career in the doldrums, he encounters Dante, has a sustained engagement with Dante and opens up this absolutely fascinating space along the way for us to engage with some really important ideas. And ending up with these, these wonderful works that are now rightly renowned. So thank you so much for, for taking me on that journey and, and our listeners as well.
1: That's a pleasure, Matthew. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I really enjoyed talking with Ed Kirchmer about Rauschenberg. I think Ed's work opens up some really important and interesting ideas, both about Dante himself, about Rauschenberg and his career, Rauschenberg as a reader of Dante, and the development of modern art in New York in the 1950s and 1960s. We've got plenty more of these conversations on Dante lined up for the Leeds Dante podcast, so do watch out for those. And for now, I'd just like to say once again, thank you for listening.